But as Will said earlier, we're back in Luke's Gospel today. Uh, so we began this series first about this time last year, and we said we, we weren't going to hurry it, but we were going to take our time to just walk through the entirety of Luke's Gospel, uh, verse by verse, line by line, uh, in some cases, chapter by chapter, uh, but to walk through together and follow Jesus, join him on this journey as he went to Jerusalem, as he journeyed towards the cross, to, towards the fulfillment of why he had come to give himself as a sacrifice on behalf of you and I, that though our sins mean that we deserve death. The Bible is very clear, the wages of sin is death. When we reject God in our sin, what we earn for ourselves is separation from him. And as God is the giver of life, when we reject the giver of life, what we get instead is death, separation from him. But Jesus came to repair what was broken between mankind and God. He came to die in our place, that all who trust in him, all who look to him for the forgiveness of their sins might receive new and eternal life with him. And so we, we've been joining Jesus on this journey. And as he journeys towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, knowing full well what lies ahead of him, knowing what he came to accomplish and what that will entail, we observe as Jesus meets with and interacts with different people along the way. And as he does, as he calls them to follow him, he calls them out of their sin, tells them that they can find forgiveness with him. We've seen already some incredible things. His blind eyes have been opened and people have walked and leprous people have been cleansed and those whose society would write off and see as outcasts have been restored into relationship with others, but most amazingly with God. This chapter, we see Jesus encounter a number of people, but also tell a number of stories. And we're going to go through the whole chapter today. And as we do, we'll see that, that each person that Jesus tells a story about or each person or group of people that Jesus interacts with tells us something about how we might relate to God and how we can approach him and find new life with him. Each one stands on its own. But when you layer them together, the picture that we get is even more breathtaking. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those kind of works of art. Like sometimes you see them online or people like doing street art and they paint one layer, and you think, wow, that's really cool. And then they get a different color, and they paint something else over the top, and you go, oh, I wouldn't have seen that before. And they keep going and going until you see this incredible masterpiece at the end. And this chapter is a little like that, as Jesus tells these stories, parables, with characters in them, and we, we understand something of the message that he's wanting to convey to us through those stories. And then we see him interact with a group of people, and it's like the next layer goes on, and we go, wow, that's amazing. And then he tells another story about another group of people, and this, this next layer comes in, and you just think, my goodness me, 
This is amazing, and it keeps on building as we go through the chapter. So I hope that you will see that today as we go through. So how are we going to do this? Rather than kind of reading the whole thing in one chunk uh, and then talking about it, we're going to read a kind of section at a time, a layer, if you will, at a time. We're going to see one bit at a time, and we're going to see the layers build as we go through. So we begin from Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus is there uh, with his disciples, his followers, those who have left everything behind to follow him. And also some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are present at this point in time. We read this from chapter 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's addressing his disciples at this time. He said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's such a great picture, isn't it? I love it. Just like this, this widow's just like again and again and again until this judge eventually relents and is like, all right, I'll do it. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus opens this section of teaching with a story. And some of the parables, we have to kind of work out what they're about. But this one, we get told right up front why Jesus told it. Great. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus told this story to his followers, and in turn to us, that we would keep praying, that we would keep coming to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And that even when things seem set against us, even when it feels like there's a battle, even when life is tough, that we would not lose heart, but that we would continue to seek our Father in heaven. And to tell us this story, he says there's a judge. This judge is a right rotter. He's not, like judges are supposed to uphold justice, aren't they? To deliver justice for people. This judge was a rotter. He isn't interested in justice. It tells us he doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. But he is in power. He's the authority figure in this picture. And then there's a widow. And the contrast couldn't be starker. See, she's powerless. In, in that society, to be a widow was not a desirable position. I, I think in our society, we understand the grief and the loss that a widow would go through, being married to someone, enjoying that companionship and relationship, the loss, we, we understand that, but I think there's something about the, the helplessness and the isolation 
and the lack of ability to, to do trade or do business or to provide or be financially secure in any way that we perhaps missed a bit, that they would have understood is this first readers. This widow is the opposite of the judge. She's powerless, she's on her own, and she's in some kind of dispute with no one to advocate for her. See, if she had her husband, he would settle the dispute on her behalf. He would go to the judge if it was necessary to go to the judge. If she had a, a grown-up son, he would do what the husband would have done. And he would go to the judge and advocate on her behalf. But she is weak and powerless and on her own, with no one to advocate. But in spite of her lowly position, in spite of her lack of support, in spite of the callousness of the judge who doesn't care, she keeps coming back to him. She keeps coming back. She doesn't give up heart. She doesn't lose hope. She keeps coming. And eventually, eventually, he relents and gives her justice. And Jesus uses this picture. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He uses this picture to say, if even this rotter of a callous, old-hearted, mean-spirited, selfish judge will relent and give justice to this widow, how much more will God, who loves you, who is for you, who has your best interests at heart, how much more will God bring justice for his people? So whatever you're going through, pray and don't lose heart. Know that if you hope in him, he will not fail. He will deliver you. Justice for the widow doesn't come about because she has money or status or influence. In fact, it comes about in spite of her lack of all of those things. God will deliver those who hope in him, who come to him for justice not because of their moral performance or their material possessions, but because they cry out to him. The first layer of our picture, this widow has no power, nothing. Yet in spite of that, justice comes. God will deliver those who hope in him and come to him in prayer, not because of what they have done or what they possess, but simply because they cry out to him, because they come to him. Then we get the next layer of this picture that Bill. We read from verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. To the people of Jesus' day, this is like the ultimate setup. Okay? Because you read a Pharisee, and everyone's like, yes, the Pharisee, the well respected, upright leader in the temple. He is a man of good repute. 
and the tack clicked. Boom. Tax collectors were like the worst of the worst. They were working for the Roman oppressors, raising money to fund the Roman army that was occupying. Pharisees were not popular people. Jews had an incredibly dim view of anyone who worked as a a tax collector. So the Pharisee, we read from verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, that tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As these two very contrasting characters come into the temple to pray, Jesus uses this story again to build another layer for us about how we approach God and those who will receive justice and those who will be justified before God. Those who will be saved. The Pharisee stands up in full view of everyone and prays out so that everyone can hear his prayer is more for the people around him than it is for God in heaven. And his prayer is one full of self-glorification and condemnation of others. Like it sounds really far-fetched. But I want us to recognize for a moment how easily we can go there with our heart. How easily we can, so this Pharisee in his prayer thanks the Lord that he's not as bad as other people. He's, he names some sins that he happens to think are particularly egregious sins. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as bad as people who do things like that. And then he picks on the tax collector. That I'm, I'm not a man like him. I think if we're honest, brothers and sisters, we have people who we might look at a bit like that, who we place ourselves above morally, who we think, well, I, yeah, I may not be perfect, but you know, at least I haven't done that. At least I'm not like them. The Pharisee is proud and conceited. He thinks he's absolutely smashing it, and he wants everyone to know it. In fact, his his prayer and his attitude is almost that of like, God must be very pleased to have me on his side. Like, I'm quite a catch. Like, God must be delighted that I'm on team God, because I'm amazing. 
That's the attitude that this Pharisee has. But in contrast, the tax collector, well, the, the tax collector won't even get too near to where everyone else in the temple is stood. He's not actually there for them. He's there to meet with God. Now, it, it's tragic, actually, that he stands at a distance because of the judgment that he would receive from people like that Pharisee and others who were gathered in the temple. He stands at a distance because he feels unworthy, but out of a place of humility and a place of recognizing, actually, that he isn't deserving of the kindness of God, he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like he knows that he has not impressed God, unlike the Pharisee. He knows that he cannot impress God or earn God's favor. He's fallen short and he needs mercy. Who does Jesus say God justifies of these two men? Exactly. The one who knew that he was in need of God's mercy, who knew that he was in need of a saviour who knew that he was in need. The one who humbled himself before God and cried out like the widow had done before the judge and God justified him. God forgave him. God welcomed him. This would have surprised Jesus' first listeners immensely. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us. We read in scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, when we come with an attitude of like, I'm, I'm good, like just as I am, I'm, I'm amazing, I, I, I'm brilliant, like I'm nailing this thing. God should be really chuffed to have me. Like I'm absolutely just awesome. Like I'm being facetious about it because I don't think any of us actually say that, but I think, there are times when we fail to recognize our need of him. When we don't humble ourselves before him. In fact, that, that's the attitude of the world at large, isn't it? People don't humble themselves before God. They set themselves up as God in judgment over everyone and everything else. More like the Pharisee than the tax collector. All have sinned and fall short. And pretending you haven't is crazy. So own it. And like the tax collector, cry out to God and ask for forgiveness as he gives grace to the humble. The tax collector went home justified. When we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can go home justified. We carry on. It moves now from Jesus telling a, a story, a parable with a meaning, to, to a bit of narrative. We read from verse 15, Luke writes this. Now they were bringing even infant babies to him that he might touch them was that Jesus would bless them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked 
But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now whether this happened as one occasion just after Jesus told the parable or not, it is not clear. In fact, the, the verb used bringing suggests that it wasn't a one-off event. This was something that kept happening. Like people kept bringing babies to Jesus. Luke records for us this occasion to emphasize what we've already heard in these two parables. I think we have to get into a first century Middle Eastern mindset a little bit to understand this because 21st century Western worldview, I think we have a very idealized view of childhood and children. In fact, actually, I would say many parents and many in society idolize their children. Like we shape our lives and our schedules and our budgets and everything around our children. We make, in many ways, many gods of our children. We idealize childhood. We, we think of it as a time of innocence. Children, particularly babies, as, as sweet and innocent, just terror. This is very different <laughs> to first century Middle Eastern worldview. See, babies and little children would have been viewed coming to a teacher, a religious leader like Jesus, being brought to a rabbi, it would have almost been as bad as tax collectors coming in some respect, which sounds crazy to us. The tax collector wouldn't have been given the time of day by a rabbi because of his lifestyle, because he was a traitor, he was a sinner. Rabbis would have shunned them. But a baby wouldn't have been given the time of day either because they were insignificant and had nothing to give. Babies don't bring a lot to the table. We, we have a nice kind of perspective of them, but potential, lots of potential. But, but their view would, would not have been quite the same. Babies don't bring a lot to the table other than dirty nappies, hunger, and sleepless nights. We've got some parents who are in the throes of that at the moment. Feels hard work, right? As parents, you love them and you care for them and you nurture them and you provide for them, but there's, babies don't bring a lot to the table. They don't have a record of good work or moral performance to commend them to someone. They don't have achievements that give them any status or standing. They haven't done anything to earn anything, have they? I mean, like, <laughs> they haven't. Everything they receive is gift is generosity because of the love of their parents. Jesus uses this moment, uses this welcoming of children. They cry out to God. Come to him. Like the widow, like the tax collector, 
like a child, not on the strength of your moral performance or accomplishment. In a spiritual sense, you're like a baby. You don't bring a lot to the table other than say it, but dirty nappies and But like the tax collector, we rely solely on the kindness and mercy of God. How we come. And he willingly, gladly pours out his kindness and his mercy. And in the context of that, with that ringing in their ears, as Jesus has just said, like, bring them to me. You might consider them worthless. You might feel like they have nothing to bring, but I love them. Bring them to me. To say, come to me. We find another character arrives on the scene. And the next layer stacks up. We read from verse 18, a ruler would have been a wealthy man, a man of influence, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy wants to know what it takes to be secure in salvation, to know like you know that your eternity is secured with God in heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus just hints at his deity. Like if you, do you know who I am, have you realized who I am and why I'm here? And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, this ruler, this man, said to him, All of thee I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But he said, uh, Sorry. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This man who came to Jesus was a good guy. He wasn't like the tax collector. He was a good guy. His moral record was very good. Jesus said, keep the law. And, and specified some aspects of it. And the man said, I, I've done all of that from my youth. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't contest that. Actually, we've no reason to believe that this man hasn't actually upheld in many ways the law. 
He's a good guy. You would think on that basis that he would be quite secure and he would not be asking the question, how do I inherit eternal life? But he has no peace. He has no peace because he's trusting in his own righteousness to secure him, to save him, to give him right standing before God. And so when we trust in that, it always leads to the inevitable question, have I done enough? If you are trusting in your own goodness to secure right standing with God and to inherit eternal life, then you will live your whole life dogged by the question, have I done enough? It's a one-way street to anxiety and sleepless nights and turmoil and guilt and shame. Like every single moment is like, did I get that right? Did I, did I mess up? Like, have I lost it? How can I make it up? How can I get there? And the truth is, is if, if that's how we were to inherit eternal life, then none of us could ever have security. We would always, always be asking the question, have I done enough? Is it enough? Am I good enough? And, and we would never know. Because there's always more. Every moment, every decision, every day is another opportunity to, to get it wrong and to then have not done enough, to then need to try and do more, to make it up, to hope that maybe, possibly, hopefully, I've done enough. I've been good enough. Jesus lovingly with this man exposes that actually he can't earn as good as he is, his moral performance is not sufficient. And actually, because he isn't secure in God, because he isn't trusting in the goodness of God instead of his own work to secure him, he's not at peace. And when Jesus says to him and, and leans on an area of his life that he's grasping at for security because he has no security in the kindness and grace and goodness of God, he's trusting in his possessions to give him an illusion of security and of comfort. And so Jesus leans on that area and says, hey, sell all of your things, give all your stuff away, and then follow me. Like, I can't do it. His security wasn't in God, so he couldn't let go of his stuff because he was leaning on it. He was relying on it. He was depending on it. And this man's experience led others to question, well, like, who can be saved then? Like, if this guy, who was a, a model citizen and a model Jew who upheld the law, if this guy actually, who was wealthy, and, and they would have viewed that as a sign of God's blessing. Like, I think how often we get that messed up, right? We look at people who have lots, and we think, God really blessed them. You, you, even in society, even outside of the church, we were kind of like, hashtag blessed. 
Like when they get something new that's like shiny and expensive. <laughs> or they live in a like comfortable house, hashtag blessed. And I, and I think God does provide for us. But I, I, I think that's quite a messed up view of the way God interacts with people on the whole and what it means to be truly blessed. It's a very narrow and temporal it, it, uh, kind of lens to view things. We need to have a, a broader, bigger, more long-term, eternal view of what it means to be blessed, to inherit eternal life. And so anyway, they look at this guy who they're like, well, you know, hashtag blessed. He's got all the stuff and he's keeping the law. He's like, he's nailing it. Like if he can't be saved, if he can't be sure of eternal life, who can? And Jesus' response is amazing because he says to them, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, what you're incapable of earning for yourselves, and trust me, you are incapable of earning it for yourselves, is only possible by crying out to God, by coming to him for mercy, by coming like the widow in the first story, by coming like the tax collector in the second story, by coming, seeing yourself spiritually as children, like those who were brought to Jesus. What you can't secure with your own actions, and trust me, you can't, God will give you generously, abundantly, perfectly through Jesus. The only way to be sure of eternity is to cry out to him. And in him, we can be sure. Jesus continues. Having said what's impossible with men is only possible with God, he takes aside his closest followers, his 12 disciples. And we read from verse 31, he says this to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're on the journey, right? He's already told them what's going to happen to him several times, and the penny hasn't dropped yet. He's already told them why he's come. He says this to them now. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophet will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Having just said what is impossible with men, what you can't earn for yourselves is possible with God, Jesus spells out for them. They didn't grasp it at the time, but with hindsight we see now. He was going to the cross to secure salvation for them, to secure salvation for you, for all who call on his name, and those who receive salvation, those who find justice and mercy with God, will not be those who earn it through good living and generosity. They won't be those who are wealthy and well-liked. They won't be those who are more religiously zealous than everyone else, like the Pharisee, There'll be those who cry out to God, who come to him and humbly ask, Lord, save me, forgive me. I know I don't deserve it, 
But I know I haven't earned it. But please forgive me. And in his kindness, he does. The promise of God in And to drive it home, to make sure that we can't miss the point, after all these layers stack up, we get one more layer. As we get one more snapshot of an encounter with someone else, someone else who isn't proud or self-righteous, but someone who knows their need of his mercy. We read from verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man, was sitting by the roadside begging. This blind beggar is a perfect illustration of everything we've been talking about so far. He would have been viewed by everyone around him as a, a sinner, or at least that his parent, or the, the child of sinner. Their assumption would have been that his blindness was a result of something horrific that he had done, which led them to be able to look down their noses at him like the Pharisee with the tax collector in the temple, or a result of something terrible that his parents did, which would lead to the same outcome. He was viewed as a sinner. But he also had nothing material. He was begging. He was poor. This guy was like the lowest of the low. Hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Jesus again drawing close those who everyone else would consider unworthy and undeserving. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, He recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This blind beggar had nothing to commend himself to God. But he cried out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And even when people told him he could shut up and back off, Jesus wouldn't welcome someone like him. He cried out all the more. Jesus welcomed him and restored him and secured him. And the implication then of him following Jesus and praising God. He was safe. He was secured. His sins were forgiven. He received new life with Jesus. I wonder, as we've worked through these layers, Who do you identify with in this passage? Like maybe you're sat here today and you feel a bit like the tax collector who stood at a distance because of people's judgment. Perhaps in some way you're hiding 
today. You think, if people knew that about me, maybe they wouldn't welcome me here. If God knew, maybe he wouldn't accept me. I want to tell you today, that you, that tax collector, though his sins were many, went home justified, forgiven. There is no shame too deep, sin too grievous, that Jesus cannot restore you, cleanse you, justify you, bring you to himself, whole, healed, holy, forgiven. There's an invite for you today. Don't hide in your shame. We're going to take communion together in just a moment. As we do, I want to invite you to come to Jesus and like the people in the layers of this story to cry out to him knowing that you can be forgiven. You can't earn it. And trying to will lead you to a massive anxiety. You don't have to earn it. Come. It's a gift. Maybe you feel perhaps a bit more like the child or the widow or the beggar. You feel you have nothing to offer. You're coming empty-handed. Why would God accept me? Why would he hear my prayer? like the widow before the judge. Why would he listen to me? No, today. If you trust in Christ, then the heart of God is for you. You have his ear. Your father in heaven. He's not waiting for you to have something to bring. He's done everything. He's ready to pour out his love and grace on you. Welcome. Maybe you've grown a little bit in some ways like the Pharisee. He'd been around religion a long time and had started to look down his nose on others, begin to believe he was better than them. Maybe you found yourself in that place at time. Just Kind of look down on others. People who, who, you know, you don't perceive to be as holy a Christian. <laughs> a ridiculous notion, isn't it? How easily maybe unbelievers, not yet Christian, judge them. Brothers and sisters, that is a dangerous place to be. You must remember. Our standing before God rests solely on Jesus and not on us. And I think lots of us today can maybe be a bit like the ruler. We slip some ways into believing that our standing before God rests on our performance. And we feel insecure. I've been there, right? I think if we're honest, most of us know that feeling, that doubt, that 
question. We slip into believing that somehow our standing before God somehow rests on our performance and it leads us to wrestling and questioning and struggling. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I read enough? Have I given enough? How can we be sure? Terrifying place to end up. Jesus gave us this illustration in kindness. Hey guys, what's impossible with men? Possible with God. You need to be reminded of that today. And cry out to Jesus and be confident he hears, he knows, and his blood is sufficient to perfectly, completely, utterly deal with all your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now that motivates us. We want to live for him, to please him, not to earn his favor because we've already received it freely through Christ.